In 1838, a violent murder took place in the Lambeth area of London and set a trend for the stories of the Victorian penny papers for decades to come. Inspiring Charles Dickens, who paid close interest to the case, supplying him with the details he would later adapt in several of his murder scenes, it was a grim affair that made headlines for months whilst the murderer was blindly chased across London. But was it really an isolated crime or part of something much bigger? Murder, confession and conspiracy all managed to play a role in what would become known as the Grimwood murder. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 6, Episode 19. It's certainly getting colder and the nights are drawing in and we are getting to the very end of this season. I believe there should be this episode and then two more and that should take us up to about early mid-December, which is roughly my birthday, which means it's Christmas holiday for me and then we'll just be doing the Christmas campfire episodes over Christmas. So on that note two episodes left to remind you or three episodes counting this one but yeah get your story in for the christmas campfire if you wish to be included loads of people have been uh sending stories in so far which is really exciting i think this is definitely going to be the biggest year we've so far got at least enough content for two episodes um but you know why not more so if you want to get involved definitely send your story in it can be a big old winter evening festival of ghost stories and weirdness so yeah, looking forward to that. But yeah, if you would like to get it in, email me, contact at darkhistories.com. And basically everyone that sends stuff in gets included. So so yeah, don't worry. Sometimes I get um, emails from people say, oh, you know, I'm not sure if this is really good enough. And then they tell a story and it's great. So yeah, of course, if you if you take the time to, to write your story up, I'll take the time to put it into the episode, definitely. So yeah, definitely do that if you want to get involved. Anyway... Let's get on with this week's episode because it's a bit of a chunky one. This is Eliza Grimwood and the Lambeth Ripper. Depending on one's social class, London in the springtime of 1838 could be a fairly uplifting place to be. Nine months into the reign of the young Queen Victoria, whose ascension to the throne had come just a month after her 18th birthday, the country found itself projecting a refreshingly positive atmosphere political and social reforms came sharply into focus and the Industrial Revolution hit full stride, transforming the landscape as the wealth of the British Empire flowed into the docklands of the East End. Omnibuses clattered through the dank, muddy streets, carrying passengers to theatres, railway stations and the Crystal Palace, whilst people thronged to fashionable shopping districts, illuminated cafes and concert halls. Silk and lace mingled with crushed velvet and blackened leather as courtesans, crossing sweepers and noble-looking gentlemen all mingled in chaotic harmony. But despite all of this positivity amongst the wealthier citizens, criminality and poverty thrived in a metropolis that was struggling to get to grips with its rapid expansion. Nestled alongside the fashionable streets of the West End, squalor and filth served as a harsh juxtaposition to all the glamour of the empire's capital. Countless chimneys belched coal smoke into the sky, mud, manure and straw mixed together in the cholera-filled streets that were tinged with the smell of slaughtered cattle, sewage and soot. Pickpockets, burglars and child gangs all worked to make a living at the expense of others, whilst prostitution was named as the new social evil, or, in more poetic publications, likened to the upas tree, spreading its invasive and toxic roots across London. In one estimate, the city was host to almost 10,000 sex workers and over 3,000 brothels, catering to a population of almost 2 million. For some people, this was a fairly conservative figure and the police magistrate put the number far higher, suggesting that there were between 50 and 80,000 women who were working the streets at night. The reason for such a large swing in numbers was largely down to precisely how one defined the term of prostitute. On one end of the spectrum were the sex workers that frequented the bars and theatres with their well-to-do clientele. These were independently minded, entrepreneurial and often professional women who more often than not saw sex work as a short-term solution to the problem of the 19th century gender inequality, saving money to open legitimate businesses. On the far other end of the spectrum were the true unfortunates as they were known, women who were often homeless and living hand-to-mouth 
and selling sex sporadically in order to pay for their needs from day to day. In the latter half of the 19th century, there were efforts to classify sex workers into four distinct groups, though in typical Victorian classist and oppressively sexist style, it did little more than frame the high-class prostitutes as innocent, beautiful and tragic victims seduced by deplorable pimps, whilst the lowest classes were depicted as terrifying ghouls that stalked the streets at night, plundering drunken men and skulking off to their slums before daybreak to hide their sunken faces from the light of day. The reality was that sex work in Victorian London was a thriving business in all levels of society and in every borough of the city, from the fashionable streets of the Haymarket to the dark alleyways of the East End. The women involved spanned a huge, oftentimes fluid spectrum, impossible to neatly classify, but very easy to judge as a disease-spreading scourge to proper society with little impunity. Fancy men and bullies were two curious classes of people common throughout Victorian London that were associated with sex workers. Fancy men were looked down upon by polite society with the greatest of disdain and contempt. Associating with every class of sex worker, the fancy man was, for all intents and purposes, a kept man and could have come from just about any class of Londoner. As far as the public was concerned, he would almost always be labelled as a gambler, a thief, a con artist or a simple ruffian. Granted, many of them were. Con artists were especially common amongst the higher classes of women working alongside their partner to fleece as much money as they could out of their unenlightened clients. For the lower classes, ruffians just waited until a client was done with their appointment and then beat them up and mugged them. Many more fancy men, however, were simple tradesmen and labourers who just so happened to have struck up a relationship with a sex worker, but that did not stop the general public judging them as something unspeakably evil. Bullies, on the other hand, were more or less all a pretty unlikable bunch. Associated with the sketchiest of brothels, they were something like doormen who routinely mugged a house's clientele under the guise that they were a deterrent for bilking or the practice of leaving a brothel without paying. The better off a client appeared, the more money would be taken by the bullies, though conversely, the less violent his mugging would be. After all, the bullies did not want to deter their clients from ever returning, especially the ones that could pay. As far as bullies were concerned, the public saw them as nothing more than thugs, criminals and alcoholics, which was, for the most part, a fairly astute judgement. Oftentimes, this judgement extended to any man that associated with sex workers, whether they were innocent fancy men or low-life bullies, the vast majority were all one and the same in the eyes of the general public, so many fancy men tried their best to carry out their relationships with a certain degree of discrepancy. With the Metropolitan Police Force formed nearly ten years earlier, London was certainly a somewhat safer place to be than it had been earlier in the 19th century, but the fledgling force was, in many respects, still learning the ropes, manoeuvring its way through a complicated city that fostered a large amount of distrust towards the new authority. Crimes were routinely unsolved and worse, unreported. Violence played a large part in the criminal makeup of the city, and murder was, whilst not disproportionately commonplace, it was something of an inevitability with motives spanning from organised crime to domestic violence and drunken brawls. Sex workers out on the streets in the dark were running huge risks on just about every level and therefore often found themselves at the sharp end of violent crime, infamously culminating in the killing spree of Jack the Ripper that shone a glaring light on the poverty of the East End. Some 50 years before his reign of terror on the prostitutes of Whitechapel, however, a murder took place in a far more well-to-do neighbourhood of London just over the river from Big Ben, when a young, high-class prostitute was found dead in her lodgings with wounds that would see her killer named the Waterloo Ripper. With Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament across the river to the east and the Strand and Covent Garden across the neoclassical arches of the Waterloo Bridge to the north, Lambeth was right in the heart of the capital city. The fancy museums and theatres that lay on the north side of the river posed a harsh contrast with the factories of the East End that lined the Thames landscape in the distance and highlighted the contrast between wealth and poverty that existed throughout the cramped streets of early Victorian London. Wellington Terrace, perched on the right-hand side of Waterloo Road, facing north just as the main artery hit the riverbank, was another example, hosting cramped three-storey lodging houses, seedy taverns and ground-floor shop fronts for the local tradesmen selling fruit, cheese and well-priced suits 
just a skipped stone across the water from the glitz of the aristocratic strand on the opposite side of the bridge. Eliza Grimwood was one of the many sex workers that made the suburbs on the south side of the river home, living in a ground-floor lodging on Wellington Terrace with a small cocker spaniel for company she plied her trade nightly amongst the local theatres, not quite a kept woman of the highest echelons, but a far cry from the unfortunates of the East End slums. Born in 1807 to Francis and John Grimwood, she was the ninth child in a large farming family from Suffolk in East Anglia, 75 miles northeast of London. Her father moved the family to Ipswich after he moved on to a career in Brick Lane in the city, but shortly after passed away leaving Eliza's mother to take care of the younger children who had not yet left home, including Eliza, who was just six years old at the time. Still, the family were fortunate enough, as Eliza was able to continue on with their schooling until the age of 15, when she graduated and entered a life of service, taking a job as a maid, where she acted as something of a carer for the disabled daughter of one of the better-off local families. As was not too uncommon for the time, Eliza wound up in a difficult situation, when she fell pregnant after sleeping with the eldest son of the household. The pair designed to trip into London and undergo an abortion, but the son had other ideas entirely, and instead carried out a plan to be rid of the situation, abandoning her in the city and fleeing home alone. As harsh as the situation was for Eliza, she appeared to make the best of the situation, and stayed on in London, becoming the mistress of a stage actor, and then later an old army captain. In 1828, she met her cousin, William Hubbard, who was working as a labourer in the capital city, and the pair quickly fell in love. This was not very good news for Hubbard's wife, who he'd married just a year earlier, and who now found herself turned out on her ear in order for Eliza to move into the ground floor of his home on Wellington Terrace. By the time she had met Hubbard, Eliza had already begun working as a prostitute in the Lambeth area, and though Hubbard didn't altogether like her choice of profession, he became something of an honest fancy man, continuing to work and living on the first floor of his home whilst Eliza hobnobbed with her well-to-do clients in the West End theatres just north of the river. Beautiful and well-educated, Eliza fell comfortably into the second class of sex workers in the city. Described as better educated and more genteel, they made their homes throughout Soho, Waterloo Road and Chelsea and spent their time drinking wine or gin in restaurants or coffee in the cafes they interspersed the bars and theatres, accompanying regular clientele on nights out to catch a performance or to dine on the fancy fare of the nearby supper rooms. This was the story too on the night of Friday the 26th of May 1838, when Eliza found herself hailing a cab outside the Strand Theatre, where she'd been to see a show and drink wine with a client who accompanied her back across the Waterloo Bridge just after midnight. The pair stepped out of the taxi and headed into her room at 12 Wellington Terrace. Both well-dressed, her in a dark dress, with wide crinoline skirt and shawl, and he in a full dress jacket, wide-brimmed hat, and a Macintosh tossed over his arm, the pair blended in seamlessly with the countless other temporary couples that were on the streets that night. On Saturday morning, William Hubbard stumbled out of bed just after 6am and readied himself for the work day ahead. Sleepily walking downstairs towards the front door, he noticed a candlestick lying in the middle of the hallway floor. Turning to check on the back parlour where Eliza slept, he saw the door hanging listlessly in its frame, half open. It was fairly unusual for Eliza to be awake so early, especially knowing as he did that she had been out late the night before. So he called out to her, not wanting to disturb her, just in case she still had a client in her room. But when no answer came, he stepped through the dim door frame and let his eyes adjust to the faint gaslight. His eyes landed first upon the chair by the fireplace that had been tipped over, scattering a number of objects across the floor, which his eyes followed all the way to Eliza's body, lying in the middle of a large, dark patch in the centre of the floor, a bedspread covering her face pulled from the nearby four-poster bed. Panicked, he dashed out of the room and down the hallway to the front door, which he swung open and stumbled out into the empty street, shouting at the top of his lungs that there had been a murder. Realising that there was no one around to help, he retreated back into the house and up the stairs to the back room on the first floor, where his second lodger, Mary Glover, another Waterloo Road prostitute, slept with her boyfriend, William Best. Waking them up with wild yelling, he then continued up to the top floor, where he woke up the maid, Mary Fisher, with the same gasping yells. 
As he did so, William and Mary made their way downstairs to see what the fuss was all about, though their shock hit home quickly as the true horror of the scene was illuminated by the orange glow of their gas lamp. A huge volume of blood on the floor, walls and ceiling had turned the usually quaint, stylishly furnished parlour bedroom into a scene from a twisted nightmare. For Hubbard, the whole thing had proven too much, and it fell upon William to calm his landlord and consider what to do next. After a short period to collect their senses, Hubbard headed back out into the street to alert the neighbours, whilst William made the short journey to York Road, linking Waterloo and Westminster Bridge, in order to fetch Dr William Henry Cook, a local surgeon. By the time he arrived back at the house with the doctor in tow, a large crowd had formed outside the house, alerted by Hubbard's yells, and one of the onlookers had taken it upon themselves to fetch one of the local beat police, a Constable Charles Burgess Goth. Constable Goth and Dr Cook inspected the room and made their initial conclusions of the scene before them. To Hubbard's great surprise, the doctor announced to the room that it appeared Eliza had killed herself. This suggestion was quickly mooted, however, once Inspector Charles Frederick Field stepped onto the scene shortly after and turned over the body to find a huge gash on the back of her neck, allowing him to make his own conclusions. Realising the room was now a murder scene, he worked to shut down the house and enlist a top-down search along with questioning the three living residents, though little new information was found. Hubbard had a small amount of blood that had splashed up the bottom of his trousers, but it wasn't out of place for someone who had walked into the room and discovered the body, and though the servant, Mary Fisher, had seen Eliza and her client after they came home the night before, the hallway had been too dark for her to see any of the man's features. No one had heard any disturbance throughout the night, and crucially, there was no murder weapon found anywhere on the premises. Despite this, Field felt it was clear that Hubbard was suspect number one, due to his association with Eliza. He asked Constable Goff to stand guard of the house, both in order to cast a watchful eye over Hubbard and to keep the riffraff out, who were gathering outside, whilst he went and tracked down the cabbie that had dropped Eliza and her client home the night before, in hopes that he could catch up with the missing man. It was surprisingly easy for Field to find the right cabbie. Joseph Spicknell described Eliza's client as a five-foot-seven-inch tall, foreign-looking, elegant gentleman with dark hair. He was dressed well, in full dress coat and a waistcoat, along with a mac over his arm, and seemed on familiar terms with Eliza, who he had called Lizzie. Through the cabbie, Field was able to trace Eliza's steps back to the Strand Theatre and spoke to a waitress there named Charlotte Parker, who had served the couple drinks. Charlotte backed up the cabbie's description, suggesting that she was fairly sure her client was a Frenchman, though he spoke good English. The same lead led Field to speak with Catherine Edwin, one of Eliza's prostitute colleagues, who said that she had seen the client several times before and she thought he was either French or Italian, though again she agreed with the barmaid that he spoke perfect English. At times, she said she had seen him wearing dark green tinted spectacles and he had always dressed well and seemed respectable. The day before the murder, she had visited a coffee house with Eliza and this enigmatic foreign client and she thought that it was fairly clear that the pair were well acquainted. Field visited the cafe and spoke to the manager, one Mrs Rosedale, who confirmed this story and said that she was sure that the man had been French. It was a flurry of information on a good suspect, but it had not led anywhere particularly decisive. Field was on the lookout for an average-sized, well-dressed, foreign-looking man, probably French, but possibly Italian, in a city with a population made up of almost 40% immigrants. Still, it had given him something at least. Field returned to Wellington Terrace to relieve Goff, who was by now babysitting Hubbard, who had taken the murder very badly indeed, and decided to tackle his shock with a skinful of gin. The next day, Monday the 28th of May, was another busy one for the investigation. The early morning newspapers had caught wind of the story and made the most out of it causing the front of the house to continue to be surrounded by intrigued onlookers. Naturally, the news focused on the most salacious points of the case, calling Eliza remarkably handsome and laying out her attachment to Hubbard whilst commenting on the frequency with which she brought home other men from her time spent at the theatre and describing her room as having been a deluge of blood. That afternoon, the inquest took place in the nearby York Hotel where the coroner took the jury to see the body laying in the bedroom before addressing a series of witnesses, including Hubbard, who explained that Eliza had in fact been his cousin and that he knew she had worked as a prostitute. Though he didn't like it, he said, 
He admitted that he had partially profited from her income in the past. This news made him an instant rogue in both the eyes of the jury and the police, who doubled down on their initial suspicions. William Best, Hubbard's lodger who lived with Mary Glover in the first floor bedroom, did paint Hubbard in a slightly better picture when he told the room that Hubbard and Eliza had had a good relationship and that, though they had quarrelled occasionally, it was never violent and no more than usual for any relationship. Mary Fisher confirmed William's story, and then Dr Cook told the room that Eliza's wounds were impossible to have been made with any household razor and would have definitely needed a weapon of significant heft. He also thought that, in his opinion, the murderer would have been covered in blood after such a brutal attack. The day ended with the inquest adjourned until Thursday, but the evening was far from through. Field went back to Wellington Terrace, where he found a pair of lavender gloves that had slipped down the back of Eliza's bed, stitched with the initials SKR, and at the same time, Eliza's body was removed in order for Dr Cook and Dr Ion to carry out a post-mortem examination. Though the doctor had initially suspected suicide, it had quickly become abundantly clear under proper examination that Eliza had been the victim of a brutal attack. Having been jumped on from behind, she had suffered a stab wound that had left a triangular gash three inches deep, starting from behind her right ear and travelling across the back of her neck to within an inch of her left ear. Having not quite killed her outright, the attacker had then stabbed her twice in the chest and once in the abdomen, dragging the knife up and down, leaving great gashes that covered most of her upper body. Finally, the attacker had cut her throat, with the wound getting deeper as the blade had travelled from right to left. Several defence wounds were found on her hands, especially her left hand, which was cut, presumably where Eliza had made efforts to grab the blade in a panic. With the amount of blood that had been in the room, and the manner of the wounds, Cook was now, more than ever, convinced that the attacker would have had to have left the scene covered from head to foot in blood. The following day, Field was back in Wellington Terrace, turning the place upside down in a desperate hunt for some kind of clue. Failing to turn anything up, he tracked down a host of Eliza's colleagues and clients, but was unable to confirm much other than the fact that Eliza was a relatively high-earning sex worker who was fussy with her clientele, which included several high flyers, including barristers and wealthy business owners and tradesmen. She worked when the mood suited her and seemed to enjoy it. She had gained a clientele who were all unequivocally complimentary of her and none who seemed to hold any ill will towards her whatsoever. Thursday saw the resumption of the inquest, where Dr Cook's post-mortem report was given to the jury, as well as a few minor witness accounts, including Eliza's brothers, who had now moved into Wellington Terrace. With little more new information coming to light, Field put in a request to bolster the crew of police investigating the case, which was swiftly granted, allowing him to carry out a complete teardown of the house the next day, after the inquest had been once more adjourned. That Friday, Field's growing team of policemen stripped the house bare, they swept the chimneys, emptied the water tanks and sifted through the cesspits in the hope of finding a discarded murder weapon of some kind, but it was all to no avail. That afternoon, Eliza was buried in St John Churchyard, a short walk down Waterloo Road from Wellington Terrace. Papers reported over a thousand onlookers turning up to see the ceremony, though Hubbard was not one of them, as he had been advised to stay away from the proceedings due to the danger of mob violence, confirming that he was in many people's minds, still the hottest suspect in the case. Two hours before the funeral, a short, bald man had walked into Clayton's tailor shop next door to Eliza's house on Wellington Terrace and asked to speak to Mr Clayton. Clayton was one of the jurors at the inquest and this mystery man told Clayton's assistant that he had information on who the murderer was that was important for the case. He wanted to give it to Clayton directly, he said, because he did not trust the courts and he had no wish to take an oath in the courtroom. For some reason, however, when Clayton's assistant had turned to summon his master, the man's courage had left him and he had taken off out of the shop. Clayton was not so keen to let the man just disappear, however, and he ordered his assistant to go and follow him in order to see what he was all about. The assistant managed to catch up with him in time to see him enter a stationer's and buy a sheet of paper and then to a cafe where he had sat down and began to scrawl frantically at one of the tables. The assistant hailed a nearby beat policeman and explained the situation, and the pair came up with a plan. The policeman stood watch whilst he sent the assistant into the cafe and got him to peer over the writing man's shoulder in order to try and ascertain to who, 
or what it was that he was writing. Unbelievably, this plan worked, and the assistant was able to see that he had addressed the letter to either Mr Grimwood or Mr Best at 12 Wellington Terrace. The assistant backed out to shop and informed the policeman who promptly arrested the man and took charge of the letter. Once up in front of the magistrates, the man finally gave up his name, John Owen, and he admitted that he was a Welsh cooper and a Baptist, though it quickly became clear that he was undoubtedly a little on the eccentric side. His letter, though, told a story that was difficult to ignore. June the 1st, half past two o'clock in the afternoon. Gentlemen, a friend of mine this morning has made to me a disclosure in a particular way that will, I have no doubt, lead to the detection of the villain that committed the atrocious murder. The man, he suspects, is a good-looking man with dark or large whiskers, thin-made, nearly about six feet. You will excuse me from writing his name and address for many reasons. He is, by profession, a Baptist and member of abstinence. He is considered by many a most singular character, a man that has been well-educated. Formerly, in his first wife's time, in great prosperity, is now in great poverty and distress from two wicked rebellious children. I dare not, on any account, give you his name, but he lives not far from Granby Street, Waterloo Road, is by trade a Cooper, served his time to Mr George Davis, Cooper of Limehouse, was bound at Cooper's Hall in the year 1800, can talk several languages. His father was nearly 50 years porter at Lyons Inn in the Strand. He would suffer anything, I believe, yea, die sooner than take an oath. Naturally, the friend in the letter referred to Owen himself, and it seemed he knew the name of the murderer. In custody, he expanded on the story in his letter, saying that he had been passing by the front of Wellington Terrace on the morning of the murder and had seen a man standing in the doorway of Eliza's house. His sleeves rolled to his elbows and blood on his hands, yelling to the sky, I have done the deed, how shall I acquit myself of it, before retreating back inside and closing the door. It was a remarkable testimony, and one that had more than a hint of dramatics, but if Field get him to identify Hubbard as the man he had seen in the doorway, it would be good enough for the desperate inspector. The inquest resumed on the 4th of June, where things went from bad to worse for Hubbard, as friends of Eliza gave testimony that they had heard Hubbard make jealous threats toward Eliza in regards to one of her clients, telling her that he would kill her if she continued to see him. The client in question was a wealthy master cutler from Birmingham named William Osborne, who also gave testimony and freely admitted to writing Eliza stacks of love letters, though he said he had not seen her for over three weeks before her death. Catherine Edwin, the colleague of Eliza's who had visited the coffee house with Eliza and her client the day before the murder, chose the inquest to expand her own story, explaining that in the coffee house the man had dropped a knife on the floor that had slipped from his coat pocket. At the same meeting, he had casually proposed to Eliza, though she had turned him down. He had proposed to her before, she said, and had threatened to kill her if she rejected him. She knew the man lived in the vicinity of Regency Square, and though she didn't know his name, Eliza had often called him her crack-whiskered Antonio or her crack-whiskered Don. This was all news to Field, who was just about to get excited, until Mary Glover asked to be recalled to the stand, where she said that she had never known Catherine Edwin to be friends with Eliza whatsoever. Just as the whole thing was in danger of becoming a farce, John Owen gave his own testimony, where he displayed his particular brand of eccentricity, pointing to a random spectator in dramatic fashion when asked to point out the murderer in the room, before being promptly ejected from the proceedings as a time waster, and the day drew to a close. Despite its loose details, Field was captivated by Catherine Edwin's testimony. The next day, he spent the entire day trawling about Regency Square with the young woman, while she fingered several dozen men who could have been Eliza's mystery client. All, it seemed, to be giving her a fantastic time at the inspector's expense. This continued the next day of the inquest, when Owen was briefly back on the stand before he was questioned on his history of conning people out of money that culminated in a long, rambling speech about his distrust of the court that saw him kicked out for the final time. Before the jury went out, Field and Goff took the stand and gave their own testimony. Field confirmed that he thought Edwin was not to be trusted and Goff described Hubbard as having been incredibly dejected and out of sorts since the murder, generally taking it very poorly indeed and having been drunk for most of the time. The jury stepped out and returned a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown, which saved Hubbard from the courts for now, 
but did little to deter Field and a good portion of the public from suspecting him to have carried out the attacks in a fit of jealous rage. Following the inquest, Field found himself more or less back at square one. A reward of £50 was offered for information that would lead to a conviction, but all that seemed to do was bring more cranks out of the woodwork as the investigation team were inundated with hoax leads, whilst Field toured the seedier areas of London on the hunt for a mystery French-speaking foreigner. The days spent looking for a needle in a haystack were punctuated by small flurries of more promising activity, like the night of the 10th of June when Field was tipped off by Eliza's brother that Hubbard was planning to secretly skip town. Field immediately rushed over to Wellington Terrace to watch Hubbard, who left the house shortly before midnight, and visit two other houses in the area, stopping in at the second for the night. This may have been suspicious had it not been for the fact that the houses visited were both those of Hubbard's close relations, and it later turned out that one of Eliza's brothers had actually paid him to leave that night before alerting the police to a fictional story that Hubbard was taking flight. Ever since the murder, there had been a significant amount of tension between Eliza's brothers and Hubbard, and it became obvious why they wanted him out of the house. A few days later, when the brothers set up a macabre impromptu auction out of the house, selling off all of Eliza's furniture and belongings to souvenir hunters looking for a piece of the day's hottest story, including her dog, who was sold to a pub landlord in Shoreditch, who planned to display the pet in order to draw some custom. That same night, Field was called into the station upon the receipt of a letter that claimed to have been from the mystery Frenchman. Goswell Street, June the 8th, 1838. Sir, though with the greatest reluctance, a sense of duty I owe to every fellow creature, and that justice may be obtained, compels me to break my silence touching the melancholy death of Eliza Grimwood. Ever since the horrid deed has been perpetrated, I have had the public prints, and have attended the inquiry whenever I could obtain admittance, though in disguise, but have as yet remained silent. I am the person who accompanied Eliza Grimwood home on the night in question from the Strand Theatre, and intended to have remained with her all night. But previous to retiring, we had a few words, and the noise, I imagined, brought a man downstairs to the passage, who was Hubbard. I, thinking I was about to be done, as the saying is, made up my mind to leave the house at the time, and took up the candlestick to light myself out, leaving Eliza nearly naked in the room, when I met Hubbard at the room door, and he seemed very vexed at my leaving, and attempted to detain me. Calling her, Eliza, at the same time, a blank, blank, and added, you blank, I'll do for you. I forced myself from Hubbard's grasp, who was in his shirt without a waistcoat, and in so doing, let the candlestick fall. The candle had gone out previously in the scuffle, and I opened the street door and went out. Hubbard appeared as if he would, what is termed, bully me, but was afraid of making any noise, as the whole affair was without much noise on my part, as I had nothing to fear from him, being taller and stronger. One very important thing I observed while in the room with Eliza Grimwood, which I cannot help recollecting, was the presence of a chamber utensil, which was moved by me. When I left the house, as far as I can calculate, as I did not have my watch with me, it was about one o'clock, or a little after, as it wanted twenty minutes to twelve when we left the pit of the Strand Theatre. After I left the house, being somewhat out of temper, I walked for some time between Waterloo Bridge and the front of the Victoria, passing and repassing the house three or four times. At one time, when on the side opposite, I saw Hubbard, the same man I met in the passage, standing with the door ajar, and his shirt sleeves tucked up considerably above his elbows, but in every other respect, the same as when I saw him in the house. Upon seeing him, I hallowed to him if he had done for her yet. He recognising me, immediately closed the door, but softly, not with a slam. Of course, at the time, I thought nothing of that, considering Eliza nothing more than an unfortunate female, and the house one of bad fame. In the scuffle with Hubbard, I lost a pair of black kid gloves, which I imagine I dropped in the passage, as I had them in my hand, and a gold signet ring with my crest, a boar's head upon it. It fitted me loosely, and it was dragged off by Hubbard in my struggle to force myself from him. The ring is a red carnelian, and a solid one, worth three pounds. I am not a foreigner, but an Englishman, though I possess somewhat a foreign appearance from a residence in the West Indies seven years. My whiskers are now shaved off, which I am sure will account for my not being recognised at the tavern, and I have altered my dress very materially. The story of Edwin is entirely false as regards the Piccadilly affair. I have never been in the street with Grimwood or any other woman, 
have been twice with her before to a hotel in Hart Street, Covent Garden, but never with her more than an hour or two, having met her in the street or in the saloon of Covent Garden Theatre. However, if it will in any way aid, I have made up my mind to appear in public and establish the guilt of Hubbard. If you will publish this letter, that will be sufficient for me to appear, and I will communicate all I know of her. Or if you think it will not be advisable to publish this, insert an advertisement in the Morning Chronicle that you wish me to attend upon you, and I am ever your servant. I have to apologise for detaining you so long, but hope seriousness of the affair will be taken as an excuse. I am, sir, yours respectfully, John Walter Cavendish. It was not the first letter that the police had received claiming to be from Eliza's mystery client. That very morning, two other letters had been received, with one claiming that if Hubbard was to be tried for murder, he would come forward and confess everything in order to save him, along with letters that gave detailed descriptions of fictional murder weapons, and one from a psychic who claimed to have dreamt the solution. This letter, however, had more than a ring of truth to it as far as Field was concerned whilst the majority of the details could have been gleaned by anyone who had either attended or followed closely the inquest, there were one or two small tidbits that the public had not yet been made aware of. Chiefly was the information about the lavender gloves found in Eliza's bedroom marked with the initials SKR. Whilst it is true that these initials didn't match up with John Walter Cavendish, that could easily have been a pen name, and though the colour was completely off, the fact that he had even mentioned gloves at all was no small matter for Field despite the fact that the letter was also littered with several errors. Field set off back out into the early morning streets and picked up Hubbard, arresting him on suspicion of murder, whilst the next day officers were sent out to Goswell Road in the surrounding area to knock door to door in the hopes that they could track down the letter writer. By now, the forces were being stretched pretty thin. The reward had been raised from 50 to £150, and a deluge of false leads and hoaxes was swarming upon the investigations, sucking time away from Field and his men. Field took it upon himself to investigate the boarhead crest mentioned by the letter writer, but failed to turn up any leads on a possible family name, whilst the stamp of the letter was traced to a post office in Highbury, four miles across London, north of Waterloo Road. The postmaster, Mrs Humphreys, was questioned and said that she recognised the letter, claiming it had been sent by a young man named Mr Milan, the 25-year-old son of a nearby stationer. The police called into the stationers and bought another envelope, having the young man fill out the address of 12 Waterloo Terrace, both so that they could compare the handwriting and to see his reaction when asked to fill out the address. Whilst the police thought the handwriting appeared to match, Milan denied having sent the letter, leading to the police summoning him for questioning at the magistrate's court. Once there, Milan admitted that he had been to the post office that day, but not sent the letter in question. When Mrs Humphreys was questioned further, it turned out that actually she had not seen Milan at all. She had only remembered hearing his voice that day, and further admitted to have never seen the letter before the police had showed it to her. With little more to go on, and the veracity of the letter becoming less and less solid by the day, the police published it in the morning post, as instructed, in the hopes that the writer would come forward. But no one showed. This seriously undermined its importance as evidence against Hubbard, he was eventually discharged due to lack of evidence, though Field continued to have him followed in secret. Once again, Field found himself back at square one. Deciding to follow up on the gloves that he had found in Eliza's bedroom, he set about visiting all the glove cleaners across London, one by one, hoping that one may recognise them. In a rare patch of luck, it turned out that one of the cleaners actually did recognise the gloves very well, and he was quite sure they belonged to a man named Skinner whose laundry was handled by a Mr Phibbs. Field contacted Phibbs, who confirmed that they had belonged to Skinner's son, a wealthy tobacconist with a penchant for the ladies. Field confronted Skinner, who confirmed that they were his gloves, but said he had not seen them for months, having lost them whilst visiting his mistress in Red Lion Square. When questioned on Eliza Grimwood, he assured the police that he had never met her in his life. In another twist of fate, it turned out that Skinner's mistress was Eliza's niece, a woman named Harriet Chapman, who confirmed that the gloves had been left at her house, where she had used them as cleaning rags before giving them to her friend. Skinner was watched by Field for a while, but when he decided to bring him into the station in order to see if any of the witnesses could finger him as the mystery foreigner, none recognised him at all. Field's final clue was, once more, a complete and utter dead end. The investigation sputtered along for a while, until eventually 
Field's team was cut down to just himself and Goff. In a void of any real information, the papers continued to print stories that grew ever more sensational and tenuous by the day, including rumours that Wellington Terrace was haunted. With nothing solid ever arising, however, the stories slowly began to thin out, and the case eventually fell by the wayside. In 1842, the detective division was founded, and Field was made inspector before being promoted to chief of detectives four years later. He retired in 1852, having never discovered who it was that killed Eliza Grimwood, though the case never left his mind, and he had continued to investigate it in private. Hubbard remained a suspect until he died in poverty in 1841 of inflammation of the lungs. In the 1830s, the concept of the serial killer was still decades away, as the development of the police force's detective division matured and new ways of looking at crimes began to emerge. Despite the similarities in the case of Eliza Grimwood to those victims of the notorious Jack the Ripper, who stalked the East End of London 50 years later, no efforts were made by the police to link her murder with any others that had taken place in the same area and around the same time. Had they done so, they may have found a new suspect. Born in 1816, Francois Benjamin Coivassier grew up working as a labourer on his father's farm in the rural Swiss municipality of Mont-Laville on the far western Swiss-French border. After his sister moved to Paris in the early 1830s, Francois too decided to fly the nest, skipping across the channel to wind up in London in 1836. Once in London, his uncle, who, working as a butler for the English baronet, Sir George Beaumont, helped Francois to secure a job in the service industry, working as a valet in the Hotel de Port de Dieppe, a small hotel owned by a French couple on the outskirts of Leicester Square. Francois stayed there for a while in order to find his feet, but soon moved on to the Hotel Bristol in German Street, where he focused on learning English in order to improve his job prospects. His hard work paid off when he took a position as a footman to the wealthy Lady Julia Lockwood and then as a footman for a wealthy city banker and Member of Parliament. In his position, he got to tour the country somewhat, spending time outside of London on his master's estates and was able to afford to live near the fashionable Park Lane area of London, recently reinvigorated with the opening of Hyde Park, three miles west of Waterloo Bridge. For all of his hard work, he had, as far as any young man might consider it, thoroughly made it in the city and he quickly grew a reputation for partying and enjoying the company of West End sex workers. In the winter of 1839, Francois took the comfortable position as the valet of the elderly, somewhat eccentric Lord William Russell, though their relationship was often strained whenever Francois's nighttime excursions affected his work around the house and Francois frequently voiced his opinion that Lord Russell was fidgety and peevish. Just after midnight on the night of the 5th of May, 1840, Francois helped his master to bed as usual, before retiring to the kitchen to drink a beer with Mary Hannell, the cook, and Sarah Mansell, the housemate, with all three going to bed shortly after. The next morning, the housemaid woke around 7am and walking through the house was shocked to find the drawing room turned completely upside down, looking as though a robbery had taken place. The writing desk had been broken open and papers had been strewn across the floor and a screwdriver was resting on the nearby chair. Heading back out into the hallway, she found a small packet of valuables, including family-branded cutlery, strangely wrapped in Lord Russell's travelling cloak and perched on the front doorstep, whose front door hung open on its hinges. The housemaid ran upstairs to alert Francois of the situation, who opened his bedroom door, fully dressed, and sprung into action, running upstairs to check on the master of the house. Entering the bedroom, they found Lord Russell laying in bed, a white napkin over his face and his throat cut, nearly severing his head from his body. Police were called and after the medical evidence was collected from Russell's bedroom, they scoured the premises looking for clues. The latch was found to have been pried off from the back door and several deep gouges were taken from the door frame, as well as chisel marks found on several drawers that had been forced open in the pantry in the drawing room. Weirdly, for a break and entry case, however, no marks were found on the likely access route over the rear wall of the garden, nor were any doors inside the house damaged. A chisel corresponding to many of the marks were found in a trunk belonging to Francois, along with a five-pound note and a handful of sovereigns, which firmly rooted him as the top suspect. But little other evidence could be found to tie him to the murder. 
The inquest took place that evening, with a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown, and all three servants were told to remain in the house under surveillance of the police. Though there had been some pretty superficial evidence that the whole affair had been a bungled burglary, police were not so sure, and secretly they suspected that Francois was the killer, heavily bolstered by the discovery of several gold rings and a handful of medals belonging to Lord Russell were found hidden behind a loose section of skirting in a pantry. The police decided on the night of Sunday the 10th of May that enough circumstantial evidence had mounted against Francois that they were able to quietly arrest him at midnight and spirit him away in the back of a stagecoach to be questioned in front of the magistrate. Despite the secrecy of the arrest, great crowds had established outside of Bow Street Station by the next morning, all hoping to get a look at Francois, though in the absence of any reports of hard evidence being uncovered linking him to the murder, not all were as convinced of his guilt as the police, and a public subscription was soon making the rounds in order to raise the money to pay for his defence. If things were looking precarious for Francois, they soon turned fairly south, however, when the cook and housemaid testified that they had both gone to bed after drinking with Francois on the night of the murder, feeling particularly drowsy, suggesting that they had been drugged, and in a great scenes of drama, Charlotte Pierlain, the manager of the Hotel de Porte de Dieppe, dropped the killing blow on the third day of Francois' examination. Pierlain told the courtroom a story that she had been given a parcel for safekeeping by a man who had called himself Jean, but when the police had had the parcel opened, it was found to contain a stash of the Russell family cutlery and a golden ear trumpet that had belonged to his lordship. Asked to point out this mysterious Jean to the court, Pierlane fingered Francois, damning him to a guilty verdict and the sentence of death. Whilst awaiting his execution, scheduled to take place on the 6th of July, Francois penned a full confession, admitting to becoming dissatisfied with his position and conspiring to hoax a robbery which he hoped would inspire Lord Russell to fire him. As I was in the dining room with a light, he came downstairs to the water closet. He had his wax light. I was in the dining room, but as he had his slippers on, I did not hear him come down. He opened the dining room door and saw me. I could not escape his sight. He was quite struck and said, What are you doing here? You have no good intentions in doing this. You must quit my service tomorrow morning, and I shall acquaint your friends with it. I made him no answer. He went to the water closet and I went out of the dining room downstairs. While he was in the water closet, I put some of the things to rights again in the dining room. When he left the water closet, he went into the dining room where he stayed about a minute or two. I was on the corner of the stairs that go from the dining room to the kitchen. I watched him up the stairs. I stopped perhaps an hour in the kitchen, not knowing what I should do. As I was coming upstairs in the kitchen, I thought it was all up with me. My character was gone and I thought it was the only way I could cover my faults by murdering him. This was the first moment of any idea of the sort entering my head. I went into the dining room and took a knife from the sideboard. I don't remember whether it a carving knife or not. I then went upstairs. I opened his bedroom door and heard him snoring in his sleep. There was a rushlight in his room burning at this time. I went near the bed by the side of the window, and then I murdered him. Francois then calmly went about the house, continuing to make the whole thing look like a robbery, before retiring to bed two hours later. Curiously, however, Francois was not quite finished with his confessions, and two days later, according to a story printed in the Times, he also confessed to the murder of Eliza Grimwood. The story, they claimed, was given to them on unquestionable authority, and there were suggestions that the confession was being hushed up and kept from the public. Though no confirmed reason for this secrecy was given, the journalists concluded that it was likely in order to keep a lid on the public excitement ahead of Francois' impending execution. The Globe hit back at the Times, saying that this story was unfounded, and then two days later, the Times retracted its initial story, printing a conclusion that the whole thing had been nothing more than a rumour. Francois was hanged on the 6th of July in front of a crowd of 15,000 Londoners, before slowly the whole thing faded out of the public eye. But how close to the truth had the times really been? Three years before the murder of Lord William Russell, and a year before the murder of Eliza Grimwood, on the 9th of May 1837, a 21-year-old barmaid, Eliza Davis, was murdered in the hallway outside of her bedroom in the King's Arms pub, a few miles north of Waterloo Road, on the southernmost outskirts of Camden. Witnesses described the suspected killer as being a nice-looking fellow, possibly French, possibly Italian, 
who had been frequenting the pub for about three weeks. Despite being known as a barmaid, Eliza's savings suggested that she had an income far greater than that earned serving drinks, and it was likely that she had been a sex worker on the side, as was common with many barmaids at the time. The investigation spent most of its resources chasing this mysterious foreigner around London and finding none, eventually falling cold and into obscurity. Had the murder of Eliza Grimwood really been just a single event, and had the killer really been a mystery foreigner, or was Francois Benjamin Courvoisier a man with a much darker past than Lord Russell had ever guessed upon hiring him? The Swedish-British author Jan Bonderson wrote a book on the case of Eliza Grimwood, linking Francois to several crimes that had taken place in London around the same time period. While several of these crimes were linked incredibly tenuously, the murders of Eliza Davis and Lord Russell are somewhat more compelling. Superficially, there are many links between the murders and Francois. All were committed by a well-put-together, handsome young man who spoke French and possibly Italian, and Francois was Swiss, from a municipality that spoke both French and Italian. Francois socialised in the right circles and was known to be keen on women. However, whilst not completely unheard of, it is reasonably uncommon for serial murderers to be motivated by financial gain, as was partly the case in the killing of Lord Russell. The peculiar retracted story in the Times is certainly interesting, but was it really retracted due to some conspiracy to keep the crowds under control during Francois's execution, or was it simply a story sourced from street rumours? Bonderson claims that he discovered a note written by the author of a book on the Grimwood case named Guy Logan, claiming that Francois wanted to confess to both murders, but his uncle convinced him not to. There is evidence that Francois's uncle did visit him in prison, though their conversations remain a mystery. The biggest knock on Bonderson's serial killer theory lies in the fact that he claims that there were not many young French men around in London at the time of the killings. But this is simply not true. In the previous century alone, more than 25,000 French Huguenots had crossed the Channel and settled in and around London in order to escape from religious persecution, and this is well before we consider the huge level of immigration into London that continued to take place throughout the 19th century. London had a fairly open-door immigration policy in the 1830s, and by the middle of the century, more than 40% of the city's population had been born in a foreign country. There would have been large French communities, just as there were large communities around London from almost every European nation, and there is every chance that each of the killings were carried out by a completely different French-speaking immigrant, with all three disappearing like a needle in a haystack. Whoever killed Eliza Grimwood, or indeed Eliza Davies, it is likely that a degree of prejudice got in the way of any proper investigation. In the case of Eliza Grimwood, prejudice against Hubbard for his relationship with Eliza got in the way of the police seriously considering any other suspects. And in the case of Eliza Davies, the obsession to hunt for a mystery foreigner did the same. Nowadays, we can pull apart the facts of the case and look for links and clues, but our conclusions will almost certainly be little more than conjecture, the truth having been completely obscured. Was Francois Courvoisier guilty of more than a single murder, and was his confession really hushed up by the powers that be? Or were Eliza Grimwood and Eliza Davies unrelated victims of violent crimes, so frequently carried out upon the sex workers of Victorian London, making the violence a far greater social evil than the women ever were? So that was the story of, oh, quite a few stories, I suppose. Eliza Grimwood, but Eliza Davies and Lord Russell as well. And we'll talk a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. So thanks very much for listening. Quite an intriguing story, this one. Primarily for me, because I'm really intrigued by the serial killer idea. So in this book by Jan Bonderson, he, I, I'm not sure I fully go in with Bonderson on it because he he picks about four or five cases that were roughly from the right area but they really had nothing in common and they didn't honestly I, I don't think they, they they seem linked to me most of them were only linked in the sense that they were had that they were that the people murdered had had their throats cut that seems like a bit of a tenuous link to me 
the two that I picked that I thought were, were most likely to be linked if they were all linked was the Eliza Davies case. And that was because, again, she was a, a working girl. And I thought, thought it interesting that both of their names were Eliza. I, because I remember reading before that uh, there are like weird little links like that that often will manifest themselves in a, a killer's mind. And that's that that's that will be what will drive them to kill again because that this person so so for example maybe he killed eliza davies and the guilt of that murder is what drove him to kill eliza grimwood because her name was the same and it always reminded him of this previous murder and and, and of his guilt and so you know so i've read this before that this this can happen as as a, as a kind of motive so that really interests me but also just the fact that they were both working girls um they were both had their throat cut uh you know it's the, the problem with that is of course women who were working the streets were were seriously putting themselves up for a a, a whole heap of danger on on just about every level so so like like just because the two were working girls in a way it links them but in another way it sort of doesn't as well because it you know because this was a group of people who were what were who were in infinitely more danger than most normal people so, you know, is is that something that links them or not? But honestly, for me, that's kind of where this finishes. And I, I do think it's in an interesting path to go down. And I think it's definitely worth inve- investigating. And I think it's possibly worth investigating more to see if there are any more murders around that area and around that time. Bonderson, in his book, feels... I, th- I feel like he, he pretty much goes all in that he thinks that it was uh, Courvoisier personally why i don't want to sort of like fully commit to it and i i think it's really interesting but i think it deserves more uh investigation before you can come to that conclusion is the fact that bonderson sort of says oh that there weren't many french people in london at that time and and he and he he genuinely puts this in the book as a and, and it's clearly just to bolster his argument because the, because the first thing I thought when I read that was, well, that's just a, that's straight up not true. There were there were like hundreds, well, well, there were thousands of, of French people in London at that time. So I, I, I mean, I looked up um, the the census, eighteen forty one census, and found that there were three hundred and six French people in London at the time who had written the place of birth as France in the census. So that's three hundred and six that were on the census, but there would have been thousands more who didn't sign that census. So already we got 306. That's not a huge number, right? But in the 18th century, so 100 years prior, there are known to have been like 25,000 Huguenots that came across the Channel to settle in England, um, escaping religious persecution. And a lot of them settled in East London. And I know that because my family is descended from them my family is descended from the huguenots that settled in bethnal green in london um so you know like straight away i was like well this isn't true this is just not true like there was thousands of french people in london at the time so that i, I then i continued doing a little bit more digging and i found that in 1830 there were thirty thousand passengers passing between french and british ports and this was much later in the 19th century so it doesn't directly correlate so it doesn't it's not it's not the best data, but it's an interesting fact, is that in the 1880s, of the 4,200 prostitutes arrested in the West End, 769 of them were French, which suggests to me that there were thousands of French people in London in the 19th century. It's really hard to get an exact number because although there was census, um, there were just so many transient people and... And also people who just weren't going to be writing, filling out a census and, and who were also going to be lying on the census. So uh, generally speaking, when you saw the census only having 306 people, you can probably assume that of those 306 people, they were probably well-off tradesmen or relatively well-off people. Um, and, and you know, that, that, that they with sort of fixed addresses and property, maybe even, you know, uh, whereas there would have been thousands more who, who just wouldn't have you know, um, filled out a census or, or would have lied on the census. So that, anyway, all that says to me is that that Bonderson is wrong when he says that there weren't many French people in London at the time. And I don't like that he had has obviously written a book on this case, so he's done a lot of research. 
and yet that's the conclusion that he comes to. It it makes me think he's being slightly disingenuous, but you know, just to sort of support his own theory, um, and, and perhaps using like a throwaway line, like, oh, you know, there wasn't many French people in London at the time, in the hopes that people aren't going to cock on to that. Um, anyway, that for me is what makes it very difficult to sort of pin Courvoisier just yet. I think it's a really interesting theory, and I'm kind of on board with it, but I do think it needs a lot more investigation before we can sort of say, oh, it was definitely Courvoisier. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think you can just do that with that little amount of information, knowing that there were that many French people in London at the time. You can't just say, oh, he was one of like only a handful of young French men carousing in the West End of London in the eighteen thirty in eighteen thirty eight. It just it's just like I said, it just wouldn't have been true. Um what I think is really sad is is that uh you know, the way the police kind of bungled this investigation really, and Field, who clearly uh was just heavily prejudiced against Hubbard and just really wanted a conviction of Hubbard. Um I mean it would have been easy for him, I guess, you know, if he could have got that conviction. If it, if he could have got someone to finger him, uh, you know, in court or something as, you know, or identify him uh, as the killer. But basically it seemed to me that the whole investigation was was bungled from the start when Field essentially made the conclusion in his mind and then tried to get the case to fit his conclusion by seeing Hubbard and being prejudiced against his position and knowing that he was in a relationship with Eliza uh, and that this must make him a terrible human being, which for all intents and purposes, he didn't sound like one. He sounded like a, a you know fairly honest bloke who was just going about you know his work as a labourer. Um, apparently he was like cousins with Eliza and they'd known each other when they were younger and been like kind of childhood sweethearts. And then he'd moved to London. And then when she moved to London, she met up with him and they she moved in with him and they started, uh, you know, the, this relationship, you know, you can, weird cousins, but, you know, I'm not judging, whatever. Um, but because of this relationship with her, uh, that he had with her, and uh, he knew that she was a, a, a prostitute and he admitted in court that, that probably this, you know, gave him a, a, a more comfortable position in life. Um, you know, like essentially he sort of profited from her, working as a, as a sex worker, despite the fact that she worked as a sex worker because seemingly she she enjoyed it and it was her choice. Field essentially just pinned the murder on him straight away and then, like I say, tried to make the facts of the case fit fit this narrative, um, which it just never did. And it really seemed to me like Field basically just bungled the entire case. Um, on, on the other side, I suppose you've got to say, what else was he going to do? Because like I say, he was chasing... He was chasing, uh, you know, a man around London that, you know, was basically described as a foreign appearance, which is a common, um, you often find um, in the 19th century, people referring to uh, crimes and stuff being done by people of of foreign appearance. And, And most of the time it comes to, again, sort of prejudices about immigration and whatnot. Quite often, um, when people say of foreign appearance, it was deemed to be Jewish because um, there was a, a lot of Jewish immigration into the East End as well. And uh, yeah, quite quite often when you, when you read in um, Jack the Ripper, uh, it's 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 often concluded that the witnesses um, who testified saying um, that they they saw a man of foreign a um, foreign appearance. Uh, was uh, a, a, a Jewish person, which is why um, so many of the suspects are, are, are Jewish. Um, but in this case, it was, like I say, it seems that it was uh, French or Italian or, or potentially Swiss, if we believe it was Courvoisier. Um, but yeah, so I suppose he didn't really have a lot else to go on. Um, so can we really blame him? I mean, yes, because his prejudices really got in the way before the investigation had even started. But... I don't know if the outcome would have been any different had he have not done that because they didn't find any sort of crucial evidence to say otherwise. Back in 1838, you know, you really needed to find sort of a, a, a big heavy clue that would sort of lead you somewhere like like a, a murder weapon that belonged to someone, for example. You obviously didn't have forensics or anything like that. And there wasn't a very mature detective agency, but... But key pieces of evidence could have could have led you to the to the perpetrator, um, and and I think in this case they just didn't have any of those kind of key pieces of evidence. So I I, I wonder if he if the if it would have ended up 
any other way if he didn't bungle it. Um, you know, you could see how desperate he was when he went with the kind of gloves who, that were clearly, that were clearly, you know, nothing of interest really. And yet he put so much time into sort of finding out who they belonged to. Um, and you could see it was a kind of like act of desperation on his part, really. Um, but yeah, so that that was the story. Uh, I, I think really that say like the Courvoisier link is is really interesting, and I think that's really worthy of of more investigation. Um, I don't know if I agree with Bonderson quite so much that you know he he's quite adamant that it was him. Um, I'm not sure I can do that yet. But I would really like to look into it more, and um, I may do so like over Christmas, like I mentioned. Um, have a little bit of time over the holiday, you know, where I'm going to take my sort of like couple of week break over the Christmas where I'll be doing the Christmas campfire episodes. Yeah, you know, I might actually look into this a little more. And Bonderson, you know, has obviously looked into it a lot himself, but uh, but it doesn't hurt to do a little more, right? Um, yeah, I definitely think it's a, um, a, a theory worth following up on. Um, but yeah, let me know what you think. Uh, contact at darkhistories.com is the email to do so or you can have a look on any of the socials uh, generally speaking i'm mostly active on instagram but to say i'm active on any of the social media would be uh sort of a bit of a push <laughs> occasionally i post stuff on instagram but uh but yeah you can find all the links to that anyway uh in the show notes or on the website at darkhistories.com and that's where you'll also be able to find ways to uh join in with the dark histories community over on uh discord or if you'd like to support in any way, um, that's all on the website as well, as is all the links to like merch and the books and things like that as well. So yeah, thanks very much for your kind support and uh, you know, thanks very much for listening as always. If you would like to say do the Christmas campfire, do get in touch. Otherwise, it's been a pleasure. Take care, sleep tight. <laughs>